0: to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. There are a lot of things up for discussion, but claiming Green Room isn't a horror movie just ain't one of them. Released in 2015 and currently streaming on Netflix, Jeremy Saunier's Green Room is one brutal punk rock siege film, focusing on a punk rock band that becomes trapped in a secluded woodland venue by white power skinheads after stumbling upon a despicable crime. Now they must fight for their survival against seemingly unimaginable odds. This is a film that's uh, near and dear to my heart for a lot of reasons. First and foremost, uh, it's incredibly simplistic in terms of its core concept. But Sonier does a fantastic job of adding a lot of multi layered character development and kind of overall aesthetic to a film that is easily describable in a matter of seconds. It's one of those movies that, as soon as I walked out of the theater, it was something that I couldn't stop thinking about. And I think that's probably one of the best compliments you could give a movie. It was so visceral and shocking in a way that kind of left me very unprepared that I just couldn't stop thinking about it when I got out of the theater. And it was one of those movies that I felt like every single person that. I talked to about movies, I was like going out of my way to telling them that they needed to check it out. And it's one that in the mm-hmm. uh, five years since its release, it's one that I haven't been able to shut up about. In terms of it being a horror movie, I think what it does really fantastic is capitalizing on a siege premise. And it's a mostly singular location movie. A majority of it takes place in this venue and seeing how Sonia makes this one space have a lot of different layers to it in addition to the plot and whatnot is really, really awesome to see. And it gives a lot of longevity to a seemingly simplistic approach to storytelling. For a majority of films, we're so used to having lots of different settings and having lots of different events occur in these multiple different settings that kind of transition throughout the course of a film. And from the outset, it seems very limiting to have a film unfold in one location. It seems like there's a lot of creativity limitations that come with that. But I think that that's what shows who the best filmmakers are and that they can do a lot with so little and make it that much more memorable. Sonier does a really fantastic job as well by establishing who the characters are early out through their actions rather than telling us who they are. So we're introduced to the bandmates who are a litany of uh, the time. They were lesser known. Now they're more prominent. Uh, obviously the great, late uh, Anton Yelchin, Joe Cole, Aaliyah Shawkat, and Callum Turner, and we are given a snapshot into their life basically, the introduction to them. We see that they're this grungy band that's been traveling cross country in this w- one little van that looks like they pool all of their life savings together with Dubai. And we pick up a lot of different little characteristics on who they are and what their life is like just through the brief first 10 minutes of the film. For instance, one of the bandmates falls asleep while he's driving, like the film starts and the van is in a cornfield. And he fell asleep with the car run. And the group is like, obviously it's an inconvenience, but at the same time we realize like the bigger issue is they don't have money for gas and they're in the middle of nowhere. And so their solution to that is is that they have to siphon gas. And so they go to a nearby roller rink and it shows this kind of DIY lifestyle that they're living. And also just to give like more insight into their life experiences of being on the road and clearly like living this very hard life. One of the characters says, uh, is it a roller rink or is it an ice hockey rink? And they go... Uh, why what what does that matter? And he goes, well, hockey players kick more ass, and it kind of just shows that these people are very dedicated to their goal in life, which is to play as much music as possible and to try to make money playing in these different types of venues and whatnot. And nothing's going to get in the way of that. And as a result of that, they encounter violence along the way, and it kind of they're very flippant towards violence in some ways. Like the portrayal is that they've experienced it, and it's regularly occurring enough in their lives that. It's just part of their life. Whereas someone like me, like I don't experience violence in my lifestyle or in my life. So this idea that like I would have that sort of insight into which venue would be better to steal gas from is not something that is reflective of my experience. Whereas these characters, it's incredibly reflective of their experience. And we kind of also get to see after that the types of gigs that they're playing or that they're forced to play. The uh, original venue that they're supposed to play at falls through, and so this guy gets them a last-minute venue, and it's a Mexican takeout restaurant. And while the band is, like, raging out and going, playing through all their hard rock punk music, all these people are, like, eating dinner, and there's, like, three people, they're standing there filming them with a cell phone, and they're just kind of, like, despite the fact that this is the least ideal setting for them to perform in, their dedication to their art and their craft Remain steadfast in spite of the fact that most of the people in this restaurant don't give a fuck and it's the complete opposite ideal venue. And I think that in establishing these characters and their lifestyle early on, uh, Sonia does a fantastic job again of establishing the tone of the overall film. Before we even get to the venue in the woods with the white power skinheads, it's a very dark and grungy aesthetic. And... I think it's a lot of, it comes through in the cinematography as well. There's a lot of subdued colors. When they're going to the venue is our last sort of exposure to lots of bright lights and sunlight and whatnot. And the deeper into the woods we get, the darker and darker the color palette of the world gets. And I think that's reflective of this idea that even though they were living this hard life out on the road, overall, their situation is going from positive or light to dark, and they're going into essentially hell, which they will uh, be faced with as soon as they get to the venue. So when they eventually arrive at the venue, it's very apparent that this is a white power hangout and that this is an element of punk rock that has always been around, that neo-Nazis or Nazi punks, as they're called, would show up to these types of punk rock shows. And they're used to it. Again, it kind of speaks to the life that the band has been living. They originally asked what kind of white power presence is going to be there. and they say like boots and braces. So there's this whole idea that there's this different levels, Nazidom or skinhead ranks within the punk rock movement. And the band is used to it on some extent, but now they're going to this venue out in the middle of nowhere. That's all white power. And they're very on edge, but again, it speaks to where they're at in their lives, where their music career is at. They have to go here and get this gig. And I think the gig is like $400 or something. And it's like $400 to go hang out at a uh, a white power venue, even if you're white and you're not part of that movement, would still be terrifying, I think. Um, and there's, again, it's, you get a further glimpse into each of the characters' personalities because they're very clearly not part of a white power movement. And so... Anton Yelchin's character, Pat, decides, as a goof, the first song that they'll open up with is uh, Nazi Punk's Fuck Off, which is a cover of uh, a Dead Kennedy song. And, of course, the crowd doesn't take it well. They're throwing beer bottles at them, telling them to fuck off and all these things, and it takes an already tense situation and makes it that much more intense. And, from afar, seemingly insane. Like, why would you want to kind of poke the bear? But it just speaks to the character's determination to being true to themselves, early on he has a quote when he's being interviewed about the band and he says that the music is very much about being a shared experience you have to experience it live and then once it's over it's over and that really speaks to the next scene where just as they get off of that cover song they play one of their original songs and it's an interesting contrast because it's this very it's a song that starts out very heavy and it's explosive and it's like hard punk but then Sonia decides to make the scene be in slow-mo, but also you don't hear the music that they're playing anymore during the slow-mo of all the Nazi punks dancing and the band rocking out. It has this very angelic kind of music to it, which initially you're like, that's kind of a weird stylistic decision. Why would you go with that? But then as the movie becomes more and more, and it transitions into this very dark and gritty, which I consider to be a horror movie, it kind of is capturing the last essence of peace in these characters' lives. Okay, they had this one-off kind of goof at the Nazis' expense or at the skinheads' expense, and now they're going to get down to the roots of what their music is about. And so having this slow-motion, angelic kind of music occur is a direct contrast to the remainder of the film, because after that is when Pat discovers a murder has occurred in the venue green room and then the skinheads realize that they've seen the murder and they have have seen who committed it and they start to hold them in the venue against their will and that's when things go obviously from awkward to unimaginably terrifying going into this part not only is the tone handled in a really really strong way in regards to the central conflict because things don't kind of just pop off immediately once he realizes there's a murder it's not skinheads are immediately trying to murder them. It transitions very slowly into that. And it kind of captures an element of the film that I really, really like in that at its core, this is a story about misfit kids trapped in a situation that puts them out of their depth. And they're forced to do things they never thought they could. And that is complemented by sonier's storytelling that he did in Blue Ruin and that he's done in this. And in some regards, he continued this Kind of unimaginable scenarios and people being pushed to a place that they didn't know they could go to in *Hold the Dark* some extent, not as much with as *Blue Ruin* and *Green Room*. What separates *Green Room* from both of those movies is that again the transition it goes from oh my god we've stumbled upon this terrible murder and you would and it's very chaotic and it's gruesome, but then it brings down the volume a little bit and. it transitions into this uncomfortable sense of calm about the whole thing. The skinheads are kind of just rolling with the fact that these kids have just experienced this murder, and that that puts them at odds with trying to contain a situation. But again, the skinheads aren't initially like trying to murder them; they're not trying to shoot them or stab them or anything like that. They play it very calm, and that level of calm applied to an unimaginably horrible scenario is super uncomfortable for the viewer and for me. Like it's you basically is portrayed almost as is this really happening? Because everybody is so matter-of-fact about it around the band, and the band, again, is clearly out of their element, and so the bandmates are freaking out, understandably so, but at the same time, everybody around them is treating them almost as if they're the outliers. And there's this great interaction between Joe Cole's characters, uh, character Reese and Macon Blair, who was in Blue Ruin, uh, who plays Gabe, who plays... Kind of like the middleman between the leader of the skinheads, uh, played by Patrick Stewart, who I'll get to in a moment. But they have this great interaction where Reese says, you can't keep us here. You have to let us go. And Gabe says, we're not keeping you here. You're just staying. So again, this kind of confusing way of restating what someone else has already said in a way that's meant to unbalance them or like debase them kind of in a way that they just want to keep holding them at bay until the skinheads know what they should do. So in this sense that we're not moving forwards, we're not moving backwards, we're just in this moment together and we're sharing this experience. And once this moment, we move from this moment, things are either gonna get a lot worse or they're gonna get a lot better. And chances are they're not getting a lot better for the band. Um, And I think that that's a good way to transition into Patrick Stewart's character. I mean, this is an incredible performance by Patrick Stewart and it's one that I'm floored by every single time I watch the movie. And I've seen this movie now probably 10 times. 10 times in five years or maybe even more than that just because his character is in a lot of ways the way his character is played is it's not unlike his other performances he's very cool he's very collected he's very specific in the words that he says he doesn't he has a good amount of dialogue but nothing feels excessive there's no fat on anything that he has to say or does he doesn't unravel he's always as the Other skinheads are kind of like scrambling to figure out what to do. Patrick Stewart's character, Darcy, is very much in charge and in control, and he never relinquishes that control. When I say that this is similar to his other performances, it's the way that he presents himself. He just happens to be a neo-Nazi leader, whereas everybody around him is very easily definable by they either have... Nazi tattoos or they have the red laces on their boots which establishes somebody has shed blood to become a part of the skinhead movement. Darcy just looks like any elderly gentleman. He's not defined by tattoos or piercings, he doesn't have this frightening demeanor. He's just he seems like in anybody, which makes him even that much more deadly because this idea that these types of villains that are overtly violent and overtly hateful They define themselves through their appearance in a lot of ways. Whereas he's very understated. And to see and hear somebody say and do the kind of despicable things that he does and seems so normal is very unnerving and complements the role immensely. He has one of these lines where he comes upon, I won't say who, but he comes upon somebody that's been stabbed multiple times. And Darcy asks the guy that stabbed this kid, he says, "Uh, is he breathing? And he goes, barely. And Darcy goes, let him bleed. Again, like these little moments where he's not going over the top with his dialogue, but he's very precise in what he says and he's very direct in what he wants to happen. And I think that directness is that contrast with not only the bandmates who are all kind of scrambling, they're in this unimaginable, terrifying scenario. And even the skinheads, to some extent, they don't really know what to do because a lot of them are underlings. They're basically like new fresh meat, new recruits. Darcy, though, is this staple of wisdom within this world of hate and violence. And yet, no matter how wrong his plans go and things go awry, he's always very cool and calm and never unravels. And I think that really comes across in when the film does finally shift to the skinheads being very overt and saying, we have to kill these kids. There's no way they're making it out of this scenario alive. We have to kill them. And Darcy, again, kind of just goes through the motions of handling this scenario in a way that is super disturbing because of how calm and calculated he is about the entire thing. It's very procedural for him, almost as if he's had to do this before. He goes through these different stages where he can only use blades to kill the kids because they wanna make it look like it was a dog attack, basically because they wanna stage their murders. So he says, you can't shoot them because you can't explain that. And it would come up in a coroner's report. And so again, his dialogue is always precise and it's very direct. He says, you can only use blades. If you have to shoot them, keep your shots closely grouped, or you'll dig the slugs out of them yourselves. Again, this is, it's so terrifying because what he's saying is so horrifically violent. But at the same time, there's such a level headedness to the despicable act that he's telling. He's basically commanding the skinheads to abide by that comes off as being understated and yet terrifying, which sticks with me a lot more than if he was just like shoot them in the head or stab them with a machete kind of thing. It's, it's his thoughtfulness in being horrifyingly violent that really sticks with me in a way that none of the other characters, none of the other skinheads in the film do. And I think this film really complements Jeremy Sonier's penchant for sickeningly graphic violence. Uh, we saw it in Blue Ruin and we saw it in Hold the Dark He has a way of, he's very reserved in the way that he uses violence. Violence is not occurring constantly in his films. It happens at a few key moments throughout the movie, but every time it happens, it's memorable in the brutality and the practical effects that are being used to convey it on screen in a way that really captures the energy and the charge of the overall film. The film has this very hard punk rock aesthetic to it, And that comes through in the violence, and I think it came through in the violence as well in his previous film, Blue Ruin. And that comes across in this in the box cutter scene where Big Justin, one of the skinheads, gets his stomach split open with a box cutter. Anton Yelchin's character, it's uh, his arm basically cut off with knives and whatnot. And it's this horrifying scene that you're not expecting because up until that point, there hasn't been a lot of violence in the film or there was one instance of violence before that. But this just comes out of nowhere and it's so over the top cranked to 11 from the jump that it spikes much like I would imagine a uh, explosive strum on a guitar would be like you're playing along, you're playing along, and then you strum all the chords as once as loud as you can and it spikes and that's that instance of violence. And then the film kind of settles down again and goes back to those calm strums. Before the next major spike which is represented by violence that is sickening and has a gut punch mentality to it because of how horrifying it is and for the most part characters don't die immediately from their wounds are around for a second or two and you see them writhing in pain and agony and it really does hit differently (laughs) there isn't really a better way to describe that and it it has this sickening quality to it not just because it's gruesome, but because you see the effect it has on a character. And it's always stuck with me. And I think while it is uh, certainly stomach churning, because every time I watch it, I squirm whenever I see that scene where Anton Yelchin gets stabbed. It's very unsettling. And I think it's a compliment to Sonia and his ability to really craft a narrative that has impactful violence in it that you're never desensitized to. And I think that's one of the things, especially in a lot of horror movies, that you can't say because we've all become desensitized to violence on some level based on the media that we are all, we're all consuming. And so for a director to use violence so sparingly, but to make it that much more impactful, I think is a real testament to uh, to his ability as a storyteller. But now I think it's a good time to jump into a segment I like to call Half-Assed Research. First up, the script unnerved Patrick Stewart so drastically that he locked all the windows and doors in his house before rearming his security system and pouring a drink before he could even finish the script. I think that's pretty telling, especially considering he was able to absorb all of those feelings and bring it into a role that's so reserved. I think it is a very chilling script, and the concept, again, this idea that all of these forces are invading on this one location, and they're sieging your location, and all they want to do is kill you, is no different than, let's say, like Night of the Living Dead. They're all in that house. The zombies are pouring, trying to pour into the house and kill everybody. Except instead of this, it's kids. It's these misfit kids that just want to play punk rock music, and there's skinheads that want to kill them. I think for Patrick Stewart to compartmentalize his fear and bring it into a role that is so level-headed is a testament to his acting ability. And he's, again... Literally fantastic. There isn't one weak link in this movie, even speaking to the band or the neo-Nazis, and I think Patrick Stewart's at the top of that list. Next, Anton Yelchin and Ali Sawcat already knew how to play instruments. But Callum Turner and Joe Cole didn't. So they actually had to learn to play music and instruments specifically for the movie, which I think is awesome considering uh, I tried to learn how to play guitar once and that ended really quickly. They also shot scenes using real dogs and stunt people, an element of film that I'm continually blown away by. Not only do I feel that stunt people are often overlooked, especially when it comes time for award season, like the work that they do is what makes action and violence in movies sometimes the most compelling parts of a film. And it really speaks to the dedication to putting their bodies on the line for the scene. And often movies are defined by those things. So the fact that a lot of stunt coordinators are not household names is really a uh, a shame. And this idea that they were using real dogs is just a concept that kind of terrifies me because this idea that one false command could seriously injure somebody, it just kind of speaks to how talented and dedicated the entire team was in crafting this film. And that's going to do it for another episode of Daily Horror Habit. I'll see you guys tomorrow for another horror movie review. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Daily Horror Habit podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow us at Daily Horror Habit on Twitter or Instagram.